Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. It's Thursday, so it's time for John Gibbons to discuss the environment and global warming and all the major issues. And the first thing you have on the list confused me initially, John, because you say COP15 is starting in Montreal. And then I was thinking, hold on a second. We've only just had COP27 in Egypt. Have you lost the plot here? What's going on? Uh, good evening, Matt. It's a bit like the buses. You wait you wait for ages for a COP to come along and then you get two. Uh, what COP15 basically is the biodiversity COP and COP27, uh, which we just had in Egypt, is the climate COP. So the COP simply means the conference of the party. So these are basically uh, international. they need to rename them to stop the confusion. Yeah, yeah. Maybe call them good COP, bad COP, something like that. But anyway, so COP15 uh, biodiversity, uh, this has taken place in uh, Montreal. It was actually due, Matt, to happen in China two years ago, but because of COVID, it got pushed off. So strangely enough, the Chinese government are heavily involved in this, even though it's being hosted in Montreal. And Ireland is well represented there. We've obviously got Minister Malcolm Noonan and uh, representatives from his department and also from the Parks and Wildlife Service are attending. And there are some uh, environmental NGOs along there as well. So what's it trying to do when it comes to biodiversity? And just again, define biodiversity for us. Yeah, biodiversity is, is the short for biological diversity. So think of it this way. There are millions of species in the world and there are trillions of organisms. And biodiversity is really the interaction between all those species, all those organisms and the natural world. So it's the, it's the functioning system. It's the, if you like, it's the nuts and bolts of how the, the world works and how the biosphere functions from creating and cir- circulating oxygen, cleaning water, uh, moving nutrients through the food cycle and so on and so forth. All, all those things, all those kind of invisible things uh, things like pollination services that we don't even notice. I, I often think of biodiversity as a bit like your health. You know, as long as it's in good nick, you, you're not even aware of it. It's when biodiversity begins to, or your health indeed, begins to fail, then you worry about it. And that's the situation, Matt, we're in with biodiversity globally right now. Because how important is existing biodiversity to human existence? Well, it's completely important. I mean, in simple terms, we're, in, we're what's called an apex species. So we sit, if you like, at the top of the food chain. Now, that means that we completely depend on a functioning, intact food chain underneath us to provide us with everything that we need from clean water, from, from breathable air, and of course, from, from, for basic things like food production. You know, the insect pollinators, for example, uh, they, without their services, their free services, much of the food that we take for granted simply couldn't be grown. So, so biodiversity and, and, and human welfare are completely wrapped up. And I would say this as well, Matt, it's often been said of folks like me, you know, we're always banging on about climate and we forget about biodiversity. And I think it's a good point and it's probably a fair accusation and it's something I've had to think about carefully over the years because, of course, the climate crisis is is massive and it's overarching. But quite frankly, the biodiversity crisis is so severe and so all-encompassing that even if we pull climate out of the fire without biodiversity, we're, we're still on a road to nowhere. But how much of the biodiversity crisis is caused by global warming? Of course, the, the, the two feed in together. I mean, clearly, I mean, to, let's take a classic example. The main driver worldwide of biodiversity loss is land clearance, particularly forest clearance, uh, principally for livestock agriculture. That's the number one driver of biodiversity loss. Now, that's on land. At sea, we're losing biodiversity because of pollution, overfishing and global warming. So they work together. So let's say as you clear millions of hectares of land uh, in land clearance, you obviously hugely impact biodiversity, but you're also, of course, driving climate change. So many of the solutions, Matt, to biodiversity loss are also part of the solutions to climate change. 
So tell us what has been done at this particular conference. What agreements for change are being drafted? Okay, well, the main aim, the the phrase they've come up with for this one is called 30 by 30. So the the aspiration here is that by 2030, that 30% of the world's land surface and 30% of the world's oceans will be fully protected. Now, frankly, this is pie in the sky. And and let me explain why. The last uh, biodiversity, the last COP that we had was in 2010, and that was in, in uh, Aichi in Japan. At that conference, the target was set, Matt, that we were going to have the loss of natural habitats and we we're going to expand nature reserves to 17% of the world's land area. So how much of that has been done? Almost nothing. So the 2010 Biodiversity Conference was a huge failure. And a bit like I know we've had this conversation about our our climate conferences that keep making fine speeches and keep failing. The problem with biodiversity is we're really running out of options now. So the main function here, the main aim here is to get uh, larger areas protected. And let's take Ireland, for example. We've got six national parks in Ireland. Now, in total, they cover about 650 square kilometres. That's about just under 1% of the land surface of this island. Now, you would say, well, that's great. At least they're protected. Our national parks have almost no protection. They're overgrazed in many cases by sheep and they're run through with native or with with, uh, deer who who basically are effectively a nuisance species. So even in our national parks, which only consist of less than 1% of our landmass, we have almost no protections in Ireland. So, And also, I think something like 2% of our marine area has any form of protection, any form at all. When you talk about protections, what do you mean by protections? Well, let's, let's take a marine area, right? If you want to protect a marine area, the number one thing you need to do is to prevent overfishing. That's the number one thing. And the most destructive form of overfishing by far is bottom trawling. This is basically where one or a pair of trawlers drag the seafloor and dig it up. They usually do this uh, chasing crustaceans and so on. It is, it is the equivalent of bombing a forest in terms of destructiveness for what you get. But of course, because it happens below the, the surface of the water, nobody really notices other than ecologists and, and marine conservation specialists who are tearing their hair out at the destruction. And that is an interesting case, by the way, of where uh, biodiversity and climate change overlap. It has been calculated that bottom trawling globally produces about as much emissions as the global aviation industry. And why? And it's a crazy figure. And I remember coming across that figure and being astonished by it. Yeah, and the reason is, what happens is, basically in the oceans, the oceans are gigantic carbon sinks. As marine creatures die, they fall like a dust to the bottom of the ocean. And that's an, an enormous carbon store. Along comes a trawler, digs up the ocean floor, and you're basically mixing that settled carbon back into the ocean and it finds its way back into the atmosphere again. So it's a massive own goal. And it is important to say, Matt, that we, the taxpayer, subsidise this madness. We wouldn't have half the trawlers in our oceans emptying our seas and digging up our, our sea floors if we, the taxpayer, weren't subsidising them. So we and we and in Ireland we're I won't say top of the list, but we're well up the list for unsustainable practices, both at on land and at sea. And I think it's really important to say that biodiversity protection is something that we should all have a stake in. This should not be seen okay, as an us and but, them. But bring us to Ireland, practical things in Ireland that you feel should be done. Is sort of stopping the cutting of the bogs the biggest example of bioprotection? In fact the bogs are a perfect example because when you when you preserve a bog two good things happen. Number one, bogs per hectare 
sequester 10 times more carbon than a hectare of rainforest. So they're fantastically effective carbon uh, sinks. The second thing, of course, uh, when you damage a bog, you also destroy water quality. So we have a lot of water pollution in Ireland is because of damaged and degraded bogs. So bogs are fantastic carbon stores, but when you damage and degrade them, essentially for very little gain, because there's a handful of industrial turf contractors whom we've spoken about on this programme, uh, who are overrepresented politically, I will add, uh, who are basically continuing to do this against all the evidence. And it's so unbelievably harmful because... The key thing to understand about our bogs in Ireland, apart from the carbon aspect, which I know can sound a little abstract, they're the havens of our most intense biodiversity. They're the greatest sources of protection for many of our native species, including our native birds. They depend on the bogs, the wetted bogs. Can I ask you, the wind farms that you believe in, either on land or offshore, do they interfere with biodiversity? They can do. I mean, if the, we've had problems with wind farm location on raised bogs in Ireland. And we've, we've had one recently where it had to be shut down. And of course, when you're sourcing any industrial apparatus, you have to be super careful. And uh, when you're locating wind farms, of course, you have to follow the advice and you have to make sure that in doing one good thing that you're not undoing another good thing. So wind farms, of course, are a great idea, uh, but you have to be sensitive in where you locate them. And particularly, uh, locating wind farms in bogs is basically... a uh, it makes no sense at all. And some of this, of course, has been driven by, by developers and with very little input from, from ecologists. And that's something, Matt, generally in Ireland, just looking at this, the way we've underfunded ecological protection in Ireland. If you take the National Parks and Wildlife Service, right, that, its funding was run down to, I think, something like 13 million by the end of the 2010s. It was slashed. Now, we're putting far more money nationally into greyhound racing than we were into protecting our national biodiversity and our national parks. It's an incredible. And this, by the way, is not an accident. This is policy. This is governments saying, actually, we don't really want environmental protection in Ireland. Okay, but in this COP15... How much money is going to be spent on things? That that will come out in the process. There isn't a particular target that you can say the governments have agreed to X amount to spend. It is more up to different different blocks and groups. I'll give you an example. Ireland is negotiating, not on our own behalf, but rather as part of the EU bloc. And, and there are some issues there as well. For example, um, the US is not a party to the Biodiversity Convention at all. Which Why means not? Because the US tends not to join international uh, conventions. Uh, the, some, of the, some of the human rights conventions, the US, I think it's a sort of an exceptionalism thing, Matt, where the US uh, kind of feels that it doesn't really uh, have to be bound by international law in many cases. It's, it's, it's a kind of a big brother approach, I think. So related to that, there's another story I want you to get to, the EU banning products which contribute to deforestation. Is this part of this overall awareness of the of what needs to be done for biodiversity. Yes, it is. I mean, this is a new a new agreement coming through from the from the European Union, and the idea is to in, introduce a ban on the import of products that are, as you say, linked to, to to deforestation. Now, give us examples. Okay, so the kind of things we're talking about here would be they would be. Uh, Palm oil, cattle, soy, coffee, cocoa, timber and rubber. They would be just some of the typical examples of things imported into the EU. Ireland, for example, we import between four and five million tonnes of animal feed. And a good bit of that animal feed, in fact, is coming from, from South and Central America in the form of soy and so on. So that is likely to also be affected if we can show that that, that feed is not being 
is, is being produced as a result of deforestation, well then what the EU are proposing to do here is to say, no, you don't. And I think it's about time because there's a lot of goods and services flowing cheaply into the global north uh, based on destroying and cutting down and clear felling the global south. Yeah, but will people go for it when, for example, they suddenly discover they can't get their coffee or it's going to be an awful lot more expensive, that there isn't rubber going to be there for the tyres on their cars? Well, I suppose we have to maybe slightly reframe that question and ask, and ask yourself instead, are you satisfied that the products that you get are as a result of forest destruction, uh, wiping out species. Are you happy about that? If you put the question like that, Matt, most people at home would say, actually, no, I'm not. I, you know, I'm prepared to pay for ethical products. And most of us don't, wouldn't like to think, for example, that the products that we put into our basket are as a, as a result of human trafficking or slavery. So equally, we shouldn't be happy to go along with products that are produced as a result of human misery and ecological destruction. Something else, what about this idea of a special tax on private jets that land in and depart the country? Yeah, this is something that's been bubbling under for the last number of months and unsurprisingly the French government again have been the people probably pushing this the most and of course I've been reading what the private jet industry have been saying and they do that thing where they say we're so small why would you be taxing us? So I had a look at the numbers it's quite interesting. Private jets globally emit about 33 million tonnes of, of carbon. That's the, the equivalent of the entire population of Denmark. And remember, this is just for a handful of cosseted elites. Now, we have the crazy situation, Matt, that if you or I, well, it would be you actually because I've got an electric, if you go down to the, and fill up at your local petrol station or your diesel station and you put it in, you're paying tax, duty and VAT on your, on your diesel. Now, Sorry, I do own a hybrid. Go on anyway. Well, sure. Okay. And I know you don't approve the hybrid as anyway, but we'll, we'll come back. We'll come back to that again. Anyway, the point, Matt, very simply is, if you're buying liquid fuels at your petrol pump in Ireland, regular folks like us, right, we're paying all these taxes and duties and carbon taxes. Now, on the other hand, the millionaires and the billionaires filling up their private jets are doing so using aviation fuel that has got no tax, no duties and no VAT. It's an absolute crazy situation. And that's why they can afford, afford to flit around. Now, if you can afford to run a private jet, you can sure as heck afford to pay taxes. Now, I think Sinn Féin are proposing a €3,000 landing tax on private aviation. And I think uh, Minister Ryan has indicated that, that the government would look at it. But it's one of these things that's difficult to nail down because with aviation, it tends to be a, a movable feast, so to speak. So you try to work with your European partners to get agreement across the continent on this. But it is a trend that's coming. And I think it's important to say that every person in a private jet, they're responsible for 10 times more pollution than a passenger on a, on a, on a commercial jet and 50 to 500 times more pollution than somebody taking the same journey on a train. So at a certain point, we have to really catch ourselves on. Just a very f- quick final point. You've given out to me about hybrid when you're electric, but I see Norway seems to be giving up a bit on the electric vehicle policy. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're given up. I think what they've done basically is they've sort of reached saturation point with, with it. We have a situation now where, for example, in 2022 so far, 78% of all cars in Norway are full BEVs, battery electrics, right? 78%. Now, they have absolutely lavished all kinds of, of funding into this. For example, there's a 25% VAT rate in Norway on cars, but, but electrics are exempt from that. So the proposal, Matt, now is to begin to rein this back in. So, for example, they're introducing a weight tax. Now, at the moment, all internal combustion engine cars in Norway are subject to a weight tax. Now, how does that work? That means basically over 500 kilos, they charge you tax at the rate of one 
€1.20 per kilogram. Now, they're now going to apply this to electric cars. And I'll give you an example. If you're fortunate enough or, or, or otherwise to own a Tesla Model X, which is kind of heavy, uh, that will, this will cost you an extra €2,500. And I think it's only fair because what we don't want to see, by the way, is the electrification of SUVs. Thank you very much, John Gibbons. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.